Welcome to Bite Size Battles. In the 200 years following the Roman withdrawal from Britannia, various Anglo-Saxon groups invaded the country, slowly but steadily pushing the native Romano-British Celts ever westwards. Fast forward to the 9th century, and those ancient Britons clung on only in the wind-swept fastnesses of Wales and Dumnonia, now called Cornwall. But while the Britons ever dreamed of a return of the fabled King Arthur, who would come roaring with Excalibur to drive the Anglo-Saxons back out of their lands, there was as yet no sign of him. The Anglo-Saxons had put down deep roots in the country they would give their name to. They were here to stay. Or were they? Because now the Anglo-Saxons were getting a taste of their own medicine. Huge bear-cloaked men came slinking from across the sea in wolf and dragon-headed longboats, taking their axes to the throats of Northumbria and East Anglia. Those two kingdoms had fallen to the onslaught of the so-called Vikings, Norse or Northmen, and now there were just two left. Mercia and Wessex, though, while still alive, were badly beaten. Both Mercy in Nottingham and Wessex Reading had been taken by the Vikings in recent years, and both kingdoms had suffered multiple defeats in battle. With no other options left, both had paid the Vikings to leave. But by the winter of 871, the Northmen hadn't gone very far, and simply rested in Mercy in London instead. Soon, the Vikings would unleash themselves again, free to ravage at will. This time, there would be no payments. All of Mercia would be overwhelmed, its king sent into exile, and Wessex would be left to fight alone. It was a fight that brought the last kingdom of England to its very knees. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and welcome to the second episode of Viking England, the crushing of Alfred's Wessex. Mercia was a once proud kingdom of the Midlands of England, stretching broadly from the Welsh borders in the west to London and East Anglia in the east. It was bounded in the north and south by Northumbria and Wessex. It was rich and powerful, but like its neighbours to the north and east, found itself increasingly unable to resist the Viking tide. The great heathen army went back to Northumbria after their nice holiday in London, and spent 872 silencing a rebellion there, as well as parcelling out lands to its followers. But they hardly missed a beat, because the following year, they went on the warpath again, moving south into Mercia and savaging the countryside. The great Viking leader, Halfdan, led them. Great pools of smoke rose from burning villages, rich fields of crops were ruined by the passing of thousands of men, 
and cattle and livestock lay slaughtered everywhere they went. Livestock was one of the main drivers of the early medieval economy, as well as providing vital resources for clothes and food. To raise cattle, for example, was a serious investment in time and money. But from them, you can get meat, leather, milk, cheese, butter and cream. The king and his lords can generate revenue from these goods, either by selling them from their own estates or through taxing subjects who sell them. The ordinary folk of the time would get vital nutrients, fats and protein from the foodstuffs and income from their sale. They were critical for both people and the state to survive. So, to have a band of snot-nosed, hairy-arsed pagan Vikings come through your fields and slaughter the lot of them was a devastating blow, even if you managed to escape with your life. The Vikings, of course, carried out all their various forms of destruction for this very reason. Destroying villages and livestock and infrastructure dealt serious damage to their enemy's ability to fight back through exhausting their economy, the amount of food available, and through sheer psychological trauma. For many, seeing your home and livelihood destroyed causes a reaction to fight back, but for many others, you just want it to end. For most ordinary people at the time, they didn't care who their lord was, simply that they protected them so they could go about their lives. The Vikings ravaged Mercia in this way for two years, and the Mercian king, Burgred, had no answer. So, when the invaders cornered Burgred at his stronghold at Tamworth in 874, Mercia was all but doomed. There are no records of the final assault on Tamworth, but the Vikings succeeded in capturing the royal palace, no doubt over the dead bodies of hundreds of Mercian warriors and townfolk. Burgred himself escaped, but was soon caught. But for some reason, Halfdan spared his life. He and his brothers Ubba and Ivar had previously blood-eagled the Northumbrian king, Ayla, but that was because he had killed their father in a pit of snakes. And East Anglia's king, Edmund, they had shot to death with arrows, but that was probably because he had attacked them. Perhaps Halfdan saw in Burgred a man who was simply trying, however limply, to defend his kingdom. Whatever the case, the Vikings forced him into exile, and he went to Rome where he died in such obscurity that we're not even sure of exactly when. We do know though that he was buried in the church of Sancta Maria in the Schola Saxonum, or Saxon School. You can visit it today, now known as the Santo Spirito in Sassia. With Burgred out of the way, the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok put a puppet on the throne of Mercia, Churlwulf. The Vikings took direct control of the eastern part of Mercia, including London, while the quizzling Churlwulf was allowed to rule the western half. Make no mistake though, Churlwulf was on a short leash and Mercia no longer existed as an independent kingdom. Three down, just one to go.
The last man standing was, of course, Wessex, itself plundered and savaged by Viking raids and invasions. It also had a new king, Alfred, on the throne just three years when Mercia fell, and he had already paid the Vikings to leave his kingdom soon after he'd been crowned. The Norse saw him then as another weakling they could destroy. Capture him for execution or exile, and the whole Wessex house of cards would collapse, just like the others. A new main character steps forward for the Vikings at this point, a warlord named Guthrum. You might be wondering what happened to Ragnar's three sons, Ubba, Ivar the Boneless, and of course, Halfdan. Ivar sailed off to Ireland at some point and made himself king of Dublin, but then he died suddenly in either 870 or 873 of a mysterious illness. Halfdan, as we know, had continued to command the great heathen army after Ivar left for Dublin, but after the fall of Mercia, he goes north with his men to fight the Picts and Scots, the madman. Later, he rules part of Northumbria, but eventually goes off to Ireland to fight for Ivar's lost kingdom in Dublin. There, he got himself killed, sometime around 877. Uber's movements are murky as he no longer commands the army and so disappears somewhat from the record. Then we pick him back up, because when his brother Halfdan takes his men north, Uber stays where he is with the rest of the army, now commanded by Guthrum. The fearsome Uber still has a part to play in this tale yet, in the next episode. Guthrum had allowed his men some time after Mercia's fall to consolidate their new lands across the middle, east and north of England. But he kept eyeing Wessex like a lion does holding a fawn beneath its paws, in no particular rush because its prey has no hope, but still poised for the final strike. But before that final strike came, Guthrum played with his prey for a little while, nearly allowing it to escape. In 876, he led his men in a sudden mounted move south from Mercia, evaded the army of Wessex and made straight for the coastal town of Wareham, which, as it happens, is close to where I grew up. Guthrum met there a Viking fleet that had sailed from East Anglia. They took the town without much trouble, but then Guthrum showed a cautious side and did nothing, sitting tight behind Wareham's walls. Perhaps he only wanted to be offered tribute, as the Anglo-Saxons had done so many times before. Or maybe it was part of a wilier plan than that. By marching his army straight through the heart of Wessex and making a rendezvous with a large fleet, he was reminding the lords of Wessex that he could strike anywhere at any time and Alfred could not protect them. When the time came to knock that pretty little crown off Alfred's annoying little head, those lords would be queuing up to offer Guthrum their allegiance not further resistance. It was a smart move. The message was loud and clear, and with the fleet at his back, he could make a brisk withdrawal if he needed. Alfred, of course, rode straight there, but did not assault Wareham. Instead, he chose to talk to Guthrum. 
I've emptied the granaries for miles around, Alfred told him. You'll run out of food in days. I know you can leave by sea, but then you'll be running, having achieved nothing. Take gold instead. We'll exchange hostages to guarantee our newfound friendship, and you can freely leave back to Mercia or East Anglia. Just don't come back. Guthrum, having sent the message he'd wanted to, and got the gold, agreed. Hostages were exchanged, and Alfred provided the Vikings with food to help them prepare to leave. But Guthrum's cautious side was actually a well-hidden, ruthless side, because having lulled Alfred into his confidence, without warning he slaughtered the Anglo-Saxon hostages and erupted from Wareham like an unchained beast. His men routed the pickets Alfred had left to watch the town and rode fast with his men west to Exeter, right on the border with the old Celtic British kingdom of Dumnonia, which Wessex had only recently subdued. In the meantime, his fleet began sailing down the coast to meet him there. Now Guthrum did the exact same thing with Exeter that he had with Wareham. Simply, he took it and held it. What was in his mind at this point is one of history's mysteries, but I think his potentially bizarre decision was actually part of a master plan. Viking bands and British Celts from Dumnonia had worked together in the past to fight Wessex, and by planting himself squarely on their old border, I think Guthrum was raising the standard of rebellion for them, posing himself as their liberator and encouraging them to rise up and support him in overthrowing Wessex. We're talking here about the narrow toe of the southwest of England, what's now Cornwall and Devon, south across the sea from Wales. The genius of it, if I'm right, would be that from this point Guthrum would have his rear covered by wild Celtic Britons, and secure in that knowledge, and reinforced by them, he could move east from that position of strength rolling up Wessex as he went. Eventually, Alfred would be forced to fight the combined Viking-British alliance, a fight there was a good chance he would lose. Guthrum would get Wessex and the Britons their independence back, with a bowed head to Guthrum, of course. This is all speculation, but I can't see any other reason why Guthrum would have chosen to go to Exeter. He had already been given gold after all, so it doesn't make too much sense that he would go to all that trouble just to try to extract a bit more. And from a strategic perspective, Exeter doesn't offer much other than its proximity to the Celtic Britons. He could have chosen to go northeast from Wareham straight for the jugular, the capital of Wessex at Winchester. But he didn't. He went west to Exeter, and I think that's why. But whatever Guthrum's plan was, it was scuppered by fate. Because all 120 Viking longboats en route from Wareham got suddenly caught in a vicious storm and sank, along with the bulk of Guthrum's army. I can just imagine Alfred's hands shooting up to the sky in thanks to God, falling to his knees in gratitude. Alfred was known to be a pious man, 
But he also realised the opportunity he had been given had to be seized and seized quickly. So he must have risen from those knees in short order and ridden to Exeter at speed, where a now much chastised Guthrum essentially said he was sorry and could he please go home now like they had originally agreed. Alfred was a curious man and king, both resolute and merciful, and simultaneously cautious and decisive. Alfred had Guthrum cornered without most of his army, far from home and now lacking a fleet to whisk him away. In other words, Alfred held all the cards. You'd expect Alfred at this point to capture Guthrum and string him up, or at least jail him in some dungeon somewhere. You don't just let a Viking warlord like that go free. But that is exactly what Alfred did. Whether the King of Wessex saw it as his merciful Christian duty, or perhaps he thought that by showing Guthrum clemency he would gain his friendship, leaving Wessex free of any more attacks from him, we'll never know. Alfred was said to be keenly intelligent, so he wasn't stupid. We can only wonder about his motives. It's certain, though, that watching Guthrum and his depleted band of Vikings cross back into Mercia would have brought joy and relief to the young king. But, at least with hindsight, his joy and relief smacks of naivety, because Guthrum got planning once more. Throughout 877, the Viking warlord sent messengers to the lords of Wessex, telling them to join him against their pathetic weasel of a king. At least one heeded the call to betrayal, a man named Wulfir, Elderman of Wiltshire. The move was a masterstroke, because now Wulfir basically served Alfred up on a platter. Alfred and his household celebrated Christmas at a town called Chippenham in Wiltshire. They stayed there the entire twelve days of Christmas, and on the twelfth night, or soon after, Guthrum came. Wulfir had sold his king out, reporting to Guthrum exactly where Alfred was and how long he intended to stay there. Now Guthrum used the winter to surprise his enemy, just as the Vikings had so often done in the past. Alfred was feasting in the Great Hall at the time, candles, fires and flaming torches lighting and warming the high-beamed room. Wine had been drunk, food consumed. All was merry and right at the end of this Christmas period, Alfred was probably just about ready for bed. But suddenly the clash of swords broke the cheerfulness. Warning shouts suddenly cut short and screams of pain echoing nearby. Alfred's women and children screamed, his household guards snatching out their swords and turning towards the doors, which suddenly crashed open as men rushed in. They were men of Wessex, not Vikings, but the looks on their faces told everyone that the Norse were not far behind. They shouted that Guthrum was here in Chippenham, that he had broken the truce and was at this very moment fighting his way to the Great Hall. Alfred had to leave and leave now. The king had only seconds to think. If he stayed and fought, he would die. 
If he ran, he would confirm to the Lords of Wessex the message that Guthrum wanted them to hear, that he was a weak coward who could not protect them. Both choices, of course, rankled, but death is final and flight not, so he wasted no more time racing to the stables where horses had already been saddled for them. They were led to a still open gate in the walls and hastened through, galloping into the freezing, breathless night with the sounds of fighting fading away in the distance. Before he'd left, a reeve had whispered in his ear that a laughing Viking had spat defiance at his men, telling them that Guthrum's forces were not just at Chippenham, but everywhere. Wessex was doomed and Alfred despaired. If that was so, there was nowhere he could safely go. He simply did not know where the Vikings were and were not. And he was trailing his family behind him with only a few household guards. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us what happened next. The Vikings rode over Wessex and occupied it and drove many of the people over the sea. Except King Alfred, with a little company, with difficulty went through the woods onto the inaccessible moors. Those moors were the marshes and wetlands of Somerset, a place Alfred knew from boyhood and largely inaccessible to anyone who didn't know the roots. Here, among the frosty reeds and mud-soaked ground, there was at least some safety. But Alfred must have known that his alderman Wolf here had given him up, and how many others had turned to Guthrum too. Even those who had not would now be hearing how their king had fled like a frightened child. With war bands of axe-wielding Vikings on the loose, it would not be long before they came to an accommodation with Guthrum. Wessex, it seemed, had gone the way of Northumbria, East Anglia and Mercia, its lands were overrun, and now finally all of Anglo-Saxon England seemed lost to the Dragon Lords. Except for one small detail. The Kingdom of Wessex might have been reduced to a small stinking bog, but its king was still alive. Guthrum and his men would be celebrating tonight with captured mead, gold and women, but they were soon to find out just what kind of a king Alfred was. Join us next time for the extraordinary story of King Alfred's almost messianic revival, where, at a place called Eddington, he waited for the armies of his lords. Eventually, he had been able to send messages out to them, saying that he lived and to come and fight for Wessex. If they came, he would have a force with which to duel Guthrum in a cataclysmic Anglo-Saxon Viking showdown. If they didn't, Alfred would be banished to a footnote in history and England would be Norse. As he stood on Eddington's hill, Alfred kept asking himself, would they come? He simply did not know. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.
Bite-sized battles relies on the kind support of the people who enjoy what I do. You can too through the link in our website at bitesizebattles.com or through our Instagram at bitesizebattles. Help me to bring history to life.